a number of high-profile designers identify as visual artists. Um, so, you know, Tom Brown or Karl Lagerfeld, you know, had exhibitions of his photography, uh, Eddie Salman, um, Helmut Lang, full-time artist now who has left the fashion industry, Martin Margiela, another great example. And, you know, I think what's so interesting is now that fashion can be art, and art can be fashion, um, what distinguishes the two? And, and ultimately, I think the biggest point of differentiation between art and fashion is actually the autonomy of artistic labors. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Natasha Deegan is the chair of the graduate program in art market studies at FIT in New York. She has just published a book called Merchants of Style, Art and Fashion After Warhol. That subtitle doesn't really capture the depth and nuance of her book. She has written an anatomy of the ways art and fashion have become intertwined in the present day global economy. It's not just that major fashion brands have latched onto artists as a way to market their wares and their brands. Deegan unpacks the cultural codes and institutional structures that have promoted this convergence. In this podcast, she also speculates on what has been gained and lost by both art and fashion and what's at risk going forward. Natasha, thank you for taking the time. No, thank you so much for having me. I thought because your book is fairly complex and this issue of the convergence of fashion and art takes people in a lot of directions. We could start with you just giving us, uh, I don't want to say just the pitch, but a, a little more detail than that, but give us an overview of what the book is about and part what you say. Yeah, um, I mean, as you say, it's about the convergence of art and fashion, but specifically the what I see as the accelerating convergence between the art world and the fashion industry. So there's been a number of books that look at, you know, the relationships between designers and artists, but this is really looking at the systems that surround art and fashion and sort of why I see them becoming more and more intertwined. Um, so I, I would say that the book starts with Warhol. Um, so the subtitle of the book is Art and Fashion After Warhol, but it does start with, a, in the introduction, a kind of historical overview that argues that Warhol was really a pivotal figure in catalyzing this, this sort of new phase in the relationship between art and fashion, or maybe more specifically, again, between the art world and the fashion industry. It was Warhol who gave art and the art world permission to open itself up to these kinds of commercial collaborations, uh, these, these kinds of partnerships with the fashion industry. 
He himself obviously started Interview Magazine and was fascinated by the world of fashion, both the kind of you know celebrity side of it, but also the glamour, the trendiness. Um, and then taking, uh, then kind of starting off where uh, Warhol leaves us off, uh, so really looking from the 80s to the present at uh, what happens after that, and uh, kind of looks at specific themes from artist-brand collaborations to luxury brands becoming patrons of art, and specifically contemporary art, to our fashion exhibitions and art museums, to um, you know, artists who are using fashion as a medium, but also uh, designers who are drawing on the vocabulary, on the language of art. All of these different things are kind of themes that I address in the book to try and really make sense of why this is happening and what ultimately it might mean for both fashion and for art. I think for most people, it's easy to see how the fashion brands have latched onto um, artists as a way of creating novelty and uh, inspiration. Instead of hemlines going up and down, it's now you know a different artist uh, uh, as inspiration and some of the glamour of the artist uh, being associated with with the brand. But I was struck in your book how much of how many artists were beneficiaries of the art infrastructure ecosystem that there were art, uh, fashion brands that had really gotten their launch through museums through you know sort of gallery settings through things that wouldn't have existed if they hadn't first been pioneered by the art world could you talk a little bit more about that yeah i think one thing that's so interesting to me is actually how many designers have identified as visual artists, who have even left fashion to become full-time artists, but also who have found their start very even, sometimes very early on in their careers. They found support through the art system rather than through the fashion system. And I think that's a testament to, um, you know, I, I mean, on one hand, I think I'm arguing that both art and fashion are becoming more porous to sort of other fields, but also that art has a long history of being very accommodating to uh, people that are, you know, not just, uh, you know, artists who are creating paintings or sculpture, kind of traditional media, but uh, performance of various kinds, people that now maybe have ended up being associated with music, but found their start, again, through the art world. Um, and, and so I see, you know, there are certain fashion brands or, you know, I talk about Victor and Rolf, for instance, all of their kind of early work was, um, basically designated to go to a museum in the Netherlands or, you know, Telfar, for instance, like a lot of those um, before achieving commercial success that had been a brand that had more maybe resonance in the art world than it did in the fashion world. And so, um, you know, I think the art world actually, especially post-Warhol, has been fairly open to um, creative practitioners that maybe ultimately identify as visual artists, but maybe ultimately identify as designers and, and use the kind of art system as a way of developing an audience and, and maybe refining an aesthetic that challenges some of the conventions of the fashion industry. So does that mean we're sort of doomed for both art and fashion to become, you know, interrelated but uh, somewhat 
defined subsectors of the luxury goods business. I mean, that's one of the themes of your 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 book is that you know there's a capitalist structure that makes products and and having to come up with novelty or um, uh, something to sell is is part of what you know. Uh, bringing these two together, your book suggests that it's much more nuanced and complicated than what we see, you know, with uh, Kusama being, you know, bl uh, plastered all over LVMH, but still in the end, they're kind of coming together in that way. Is it is it the gravitational pull too great for uh, all of this? Yeah, I think, you know, on one hand, of course, it is, uh, you know, the sort of endless, the relentless sort of cycles and um, churn of fashion means that there's always the next thing. As you said, hemlines go up and down and the flavor of this month might be Kusama and then next year it's Jeff Koons or, you know, Stephen Sprouse or Richard Prince or whoever. Um, so we've seen fashion draw on art in that way to kind of inject novelty and of course Collaborating with an artist um, also means that there's an occasion for media attention, for an advertising campaign. Um, but I, I do think it goes much deeper than that. I think brands are really looking to position themselves. And, and Bernard Arnault, who's the owner of LVMH, you know, has explicitly said Louis Vuitton is, is not a fashion brand, it's a cultural brand. And so I think that that points to something that I see as really having changed in very recent years, which is that it's not just, you know, a one-off artist collaboration as a way to kind of bring attention to the brand. Maybe it started as that, if we go back to the, you know, Mark Jacobs era and collaborations with Takashi Murakami. But I think now what's so interesting to me is I think this is actually affecting the art world it, at a number of different levels. So you have the kind of blue chip, big name artists like the Kusamas or the Murakamis or the Jeff Koons that are doing these very, very kind of, um, you know, these complicated deals with big brands like, say, Louis Vuitton, where they have maybe one deal that, uh, one contract that over, you know, that oversees or governs the um, products, the product lines. Another might be for installations and stores. There's also, you know, a massive multi-million dollar, you know, marketing campaign. Um, so those are very high profile partnerships. But, you know, talking to people I know who work for even small galleries, they're getting approached through social media from sometimes big brands, sometimes small brands for their artists to do store design or to, you know, to work with an artist on a very specific thing for, let's say, their, you know, Los Angeles store or for a social media campaign that is never going to have the same visibility as a Louis Vuitton like Kusama, you know, like multinational extravaganza, but it's still, uh, you know, I think affecting both the way that artists are receiving income and supporting themselves, but also ultimately the kind of work that they're doing, because a lot of this work also is, you know, going to be in a commercial context, and, and there are certain sort of effects. But, but even uh, prior to their making money as the collaborator, what you're describing is an alternative to, you know, a gallery show as a way of, of more people encountering the artist's work, either just being not, uh, 
seeing it, so having knowledge of that that work, or being able to experience it, you know, in the art world, it's, you know, they're painting sculptures and then additions, you know, multiple uh, items and that, that somewhat mirrors the couture, you know, diffusion line, uh, a ready to wear uh, a pyramid. But more than that, it's also a, a different way to encounter. And, and, and I think that is, you know, every time we think like this has gone so far, it can't go far. It seems to get more extended. There are there are different uh, isolated pockets as well as these, you know, sort of super. I mean, I don't think the Kusama experience that we've just witnessed with LVMH, I think, is bigger than anyone uh, expected. Yeah. Uh, and the reception of it was was well. The bigger. marketing campaign was massive, and the fact that like you had that campaign take over all the flagships internationally, but also have these pop-ups like here in New York, a pop-up specifically for that line. Um, I think this was the most ambitious artist brand collaboration yet. And um, surely also the most costly for LVMH. I think they made a huge investment in and as long as it's successful, we will see them attempt to do more of them. But at the same token, where then you're describing these much more uh, niche-oriented ones, we've also seen it's a it's another LVMH brand. But this relaunch of Tiffany's flagship store with the Peter Marino, who's mm-hmm. done it for other brands, idea of making these boutiques into you know uh, unique experiences. So it's the it's a global brand, but the the store has works of art and a design that makes it a a destination. And I think, you know, there's a chapter of the book where I look at what I see as the parallels between the luxury flagship and the mega gallery and the way that the luxury flagship now is not really about selling things. It's an experience. It's meant to be a physical manifestation of the brand. And so, you know, you can go to a Dior store in Tokyo or something, or, you know, you go to one of these flagships and there's a coffee shop and there's, um, you know, a museum or there's, there's all these experiential things that I do think is not only are the architects often the same, Peter Marino being a good example, but also, you know, you have, um, a lot of the same experiential offerings trying to attract a much broader public than probably will end up, you know, becoming a VIP client at either of these locations, whether it's a mega gallery or a mega store. But um, in both cases, they're making an appeal to the public as a way to extend the brand. And and we can go to a Hauser and Worth um, a location and have a similar sort of Absolutely. experience. And so, what what stops um, one of the the big global uh, galleries? Uh, from launching some sort of a fashion brand. I mean, we've already seen, uh, and you described it in the book, the Raph Simmons, uh, uh, Sterling Ruby kind of switching up collaboration turned into switching of places. The, the designer becomes an artist. The artist becomes a, uh, has his own, uh, uh fashion line. Are we going to see more of that kind of melding or, or crossing of the streams? I mean, I would not be surprised at all. I think there were those rumors about, uh, LVMH investing in Gagosian Gallery. Um, obviously, a lot of the owners of these brands, whether it's Michia Prada or Arnaud or Pino, are also major art collectors, have their own art museums, are very actively involved in the art world. So I think it's it seems almost inevitable, although it hasn't happened exactly yet. And uh, one thing that was interesting, looking back in, you know, kind of looking into Warhol a bit more for this book, looking at some of the articles that appeared shortly after his death and seeing that people were speculating that there would be a fashion brand 
uh, you know, centered around Warhol in 1987 when he died. There was speculation about that. That, you know, has yet to happen. Although you could argue that maybe it's not a Warhol brand, yet the brand of Warhol is so widely disseminated through so many products, through licensing and through the Andy Warhol Foundation that effectively maybe that, that did happen. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, the, this kind of, um, not just partnership, but uh, kind of uh, strategic investment is something that seems almost inevitable. So one of the things I think the two worlds also have in common is that they are a way of global people sharing something in common. They're a lingua franca. You, the, the uh, uh, Chinese uh, person and the South American person may not, they may do business, they may not, but they, they both know the same designers and the same artists. We've seen in the sort of art fair circuit that the very wealthy by traveling around have this sort of shared participation. It's sort of a, you know, a global club and certainly being, you know, wearing clothes from a, uh, especially a very expensive brand is very much part of being part of a global, uh, uh, uh club, uh, together. So first of all, I, I guess, does that, Continue apace. I mean, is it is it just you know all, both of these worlds just become for this this very upper layer of wealthy pe people? Does it do something where it creates a broader global co culture? I'm sort of curious from this perspective of fashion and uh, and art, how you see that playing out. Yeah, I think um, I mean it is. I, I think a big part of this is that. Uh, both in terms of why art is embracing fashion and fashion embracing art is because they do have the same clientele, of course. You know, you could even think of fashion as a kind of gateway drug into the art market where, you know, you start, and I think certainly the auction houses do, if you look at their handbag sales or something like that, that can be a first point of entry into uh, dealing with, like a Christie's or a Sotheby's, you buy an Hermes bag at auction and then you Perhaps, you know, I think that's the, the hope and expectation is that perhaps then you move into other categories. I, I, I think these days they're just as happy for you to stay in that category as long well, as you keep buying. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and that has been a very successful category. If you look at, um, I think that was one thing that was interesting about working on this book during the pandemic is actually see not just the proliferation of these kinds of sales and even going sales going in new directions like streetwear, Supreme, like all of the sneakers, all of these things, but also to see how successful they were relative to other categories. But the auction houses tried to, a number of years ago, create uh, vintage fashion uh, departments and businesses, mm -hmm. Sotheby's especially. Uh, and I don't think they were unsuccessful in it. And then we've seen, you know, all sorts of other businesses uh, that are not the same but not dissimilar, you know, the real real and rent the runway and the, those sorts of the things uh, uh, develop. And certainly vintage um, uh, fashion has become an important uh, collectible. It, but it doesn't hasn't really had an impact in in that same sphere in the auction houses uh, or the galleries. Do you, any sort of thoughts on why? Well, I see definitely a lot of these companies, whether it's the real real or it's Grailed, they definitely are um, drawing on a lot of the strategies of the auction houses. So even the way items are presented on their website, I mean, it looks very similar to the way an art auction house would present, you know, a lot for an upcoming sale. 
Um, and they're drawing on provenance and rarity and, you know, all of the language is very similar. Um, it's a market, the resale luxury fashion market is a growing market and I think an increasingly important one. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting to see how, on one hand, I think the auction houses have been very interested in kind of aligning themselves with, with some aspects of this. But on the other hand, you know, I think vintage fashion does offer some, um, you know, does, does present some challenges for the auction houses. Um, you know, I think you see fashion items, especially in these kind of like celebrity type sales, but as a dedicated category, I mean, you're looking mostly at accessories. So sneakers. Is that just like a sizing yeah, issue, right? Because, you know, the uh, handbags come in one size, but dress, <laughs> a dress or pants come in at different sizes or? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think that uh, vintage fashion, you have conservation issues, you have display issues, you have the sizing issues, whereas a handbag, like, as you said, it is a lingua franca, like a Hermes Kelly bag. You can attract consumers, clients from all over the world who will all want the same bag. And also they're relatively high value items, especially if it's made out of, you know, alligator skin or Himalayan crocodile. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Some kind of rare animal. So, um, you know, I think that contributes too. And then you can sell that for, you know, sometimes upwards of six figures. And, and then you also have your, your very nice commission on that, um, where there's a lot of upside relative to fine art. But do you see anything, I guess, uh, what I was sort of getting at is, is that an underdeveloped uh, space, the clothing? And I, I, it sounds like it, it isn't in part because, uh, you know, there, there's not the regularity. And the nice thing about the sneakers and the handbags is they're, the, all the Kelly bags or the Birkin bags look alike, even if they're made with different materials. So you're familiar with, with that. It's much harder to do that with, you know, a resort wear season from a particular designer or, or, or you know, it, it, we get back to the unique items versus iterations of, of collectible standard. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's a kind of messy business to get into just with all the sizing and all the collections and all the different potential historical periods that you could cover. But on the other hand, we saw Sotheby's, for instance, collaborate with Prada on an auction where they uh, were taking not just clothing, garments from their most recent runway show, straight from the runway, but also all these collectible items that, you know, Rem Coolhouse had designed the sets and all of these other sort of things that were kind of ephemera or collectibles related to the sale. So kind of drawing on the kind of glamour, the prestige of fashion. Also, that sale is another good example where a number, you know, a pretty high percentage of those uh, ultimate buyers were first-time buyers at Sotheby's. Well, that reminds me of the um, Damien Hurst Pharmacy restaurant mm -hmm. uh, uh, sale, which is, I don't know, 15 uh, uh, some odd years ago, but was one of the first inflection points in building um, Hearst's broader uh, uh, secondary market recognition and, and uh, fame. And it makes sense to be able to take sort of, you know, a moment in time and then be able to uh, both disperse the the uh, objects from it, but also you know re really confirm the importance of it by having people bid on these um, mementos of that uh, experience. Do you think people would would sort of 
design things to be done that way, you know, build a, a, a collection with the hope of doing, not, not sort of like say, hey, this is a good idea, but actually try and build it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting thought. And, you know, in a way it's surprising. I think that Prada Sotheby's sale was the first kind of sale built around a runway show. And that was not an artist designer collaboration. That was just Prada. Um, but you can imagine, like, if you think of, well, say, for instance, some of the collaborations Dior has done with artists, like I'm thinking of Peter Doig, where he actually hand-painted the hats that were on the runway or uh, did the set design. I mean, like, you could totally imagine a sale kind of, you know, being um, based around one of these runway presentations and, and perhaps that even informing the decisions of sort of what should be made or what should be produced to... Um, you know, to, to both be shown in a runway presentation, but then ultimately be sold. So one of the things you get in in the book is the um, issue of images created to market fashion. And at one point, you talk about uh, a couple of designers recognizing that it was cheaper to license Maplethorpe or, or Warhol images for an ad campaign than it was to commission, you know, uh, uh, Bruce Weber, Herb, uh, you know, yeah. some, some sort of famous uh, photographer to shoot original uh, work uh, for it. And then you also talk about how social media has changed fashion advertising in, in some very profound ways, but it also drew upon um, imagery from art. One, I just could you sort of do, retell that better than I ju ju just uh, did. But also, I mean, that also seems like this is a, a, one of the places that we don't talk about fashion and art. It's an enormous crossover. It may not necessarily be, I mean, I suppose someone makes money one way or the other, but it's really not a collaboration. But it is one of these places where art and fashion are on the kind of same terrain and both uh, uh, facing each other uh, uh, in opposition and also collaborating at the same time. Definitely. And I think that that's one aspect of the kind of idea of the rise of cultural brands that interests me, sort of not just what the products are and if they're kind of art inflected or they're the result of a collaboration between an artist and a brand, but the way that that's kind of permeating every aspect of the business. So marketing, I think, is a great example. And, you know, there's a lot of recent um, examples, like, for instance, when Ralph Simmons was the <clears throat> uh, creative director of Calvin Klein, he, you know, not only oversaw this multi-year kind of unprecedented partnership with the Andy Warhol Foundation, but he had his models pose in front of works of art at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh or, you know, at the, um, I think there was maybe some ads also that were uh, shot at the DIA um, Art Foundation. So, you know, it, it's kind of just uh, signaling that art, even if it's not the, you know, it's even if it's in the background, that it's part of a kind of lifestyle. They, they had, um, Calvin Klein had paid for the Diaz collections of Warhol's shadows paintings to be restored. Right, on the occasion of the big show at the Whitney. So yeah, no, all of these things, there's always these kind of interesting um, and sort of varied points of intersection that kind of overlap. But I think that was one thing that was really interesting in writing the book too, is, you know, you, you might see something, the most visible, um, expression of this might be the formal partnership, but then there's all these other things that are kind of happening behind the scenes too. So the marketing campaign being, you know, again, one aspect of that where uh, a Warhol painting is in the background of an ad. Um, more recently, there was, uh, 
a case where the Joan Mitchell Foundation sent a cease and desist letter to uh, Louis Vuitton because there's the Joan Mitchell show, Joan Mitchell Monet show that was at the Foundation Louis Vuitton, and then um, without the you know foundation's permission. Um, Louis Vuitton did an ad campaign in the museum in front of the Joan Mitchell works, even though the foundation apparently had explicitly told them that they were not going to grant permission for those works to be depicted in an advertising campaign. So, you know, and, and then actually I was sort of interested in this and recently looked into the fact that, you know, for the last, you know, uh, there's been a number of years where the Louis Vuitton Foundation has done a very similar ad campaign with Stephen Meisel, you know, in front of works of art. So they've done in front of uh, Gerhard Richter's Squeegee, they've done in front of the, you know, Monet Water Lilies, in front of Joan Mitchell, and it's always with Lea Sadu and always posing with the Louis Vuitton handbag. And so, you know, why kind of, it's almost a formula now for them to kind of repeat the same, you know, model, the same sort of setting in a museum, but with always different art in the background. Well, but I also wanted to get at the other side of that, which is the big revolution for everyone, but particularly for fashion and art, has been the rise of social media and the giving up of control. When you shoot an ad campaign, however you, whether you're licensing it, shooting it, shooting it in front of those things, you have control and then you buy space and put those ads in magazines or, you know, on websites or you don't put them on an Instagram account because that doesn't work uh, in, in a um, social world. What you do instead is create an event and bring influencers to that event. And there have been fashion shows in Venice during, you know, uh, uh, in constructions made for this exact thing. Here are the models standing around the clothes. You go at it. You create the influencers, uh, effectively the campaign. We've controlled the environment that you can shoot in, but you have the freedom. The same thing has been happening in museums and galleries now for a dozen years where, you know, people are watching what's shown on Instagram and using that as a barometer of impact, uh, decision making. Should I go see that show? Are, are people responding to that, that show? So there seems to be, uh, uh, you know, they're not the only thing affected by social media, but it, it's it, the, the similarities between the art and fashion wor world seem to be about that. You want to control the narrative, but you can't. So you want to control the conditions on which, uh, under which the narrative is created. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to know too, how many fashion brands now are staging shows and presentations at art museums, at art galleries, um, or iconic kind of architectural spaces as a way, I think, you know, regardless of like what's being posted, if you have your runway presentation at Art Basel, that is the context. Um, so I think that is part of it, right? Which is that uh, in some ways, the, the sort of thrust of social media is popularization, democratization. On the other hand, like art can be a way to sort of claw back control and, and sort of continue to suggest that actually this world is about rarity and exclusivity and about sort of intellectual high-mindedness regardless of what content is being produ produced by, say, influencers or people on social media. I suspect we've already seen this, but you know, you have the, we just talked about Simon's um, Ruby and that crossover. We haven't talked about, there is a, a semi-generation of um, 
Arsham, Virgil Abloh, uh, I think there's one or two others that I'm not uh, immediately come to mind, of, of uh, artist designers, artist stylists, who sort of, will we see someone who comes up sort of as both? Uh, I know of at least one, um, you know, creative director from uh, a, a clothing brand. I'm not sure we call it a fa fa fashion brand, but that may be my ignorance. Who is also a painter and has representation for both? But I, but I mean, like more more like is is Virgil Abloh? Are there going to be six more? unique to their sensibilities, but similar in that, you know, the things that I do sometimes are fashion, sometimes are, are, are art, and may be hard to describe which is which. Yeah, I think, um, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, the, I think that Virgil Abloh uh, presented a kind of new model in a way that someone like Daniel Arsham is maybe following in those footsteps, you could say. I mean, he um, didn't come up through the art world. He came up initially working for Kanye West, then as a designer, you know, then through his label Off-White, then through Louis Vuitton, so kind of working his way up through the design world, but also constantly collaborating with brands, whether it was Evian Water or, you know, um, uh, Ikea. So producing products for just a huge range of different types of brands and kind of presenting himself as someone who was, you know, endlessly flexible in that way, who could be kind of deployed in service of almost anything. Um, of course, he ultimately uh, was collaborating with Takashi Murakami, and, and he had a series of shows at different Gagosian galleries around the world. And I think to me that represented something new, which is uh, not just him as a kind of, you know, quote unquote creative that, you know, defied just a simple label of, you know, artist or designer, but also the way that art, he didn't come up through the art world, that it actually was a late stage in his career that he was sort of uh, validated, legitimized, anointed by the art establishment. And of course, he had a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago that traveled to the Brooklyn Museum. So, um, you know, it, you know, that you could see that as sort of, in some ways, in the tradition of pop art, but in some ways, slightly different in that, you know, pop art is a high art bringing kind of low art into high art. But in this case, I think it's high art kind of opening itself to popular culture, not just taking the kind of imagery of popular culture, but really actually becoming a sort of arena for popular culture. And I see Abloh is a great example of that. I think Cause is someone else who really came up through um, you know, design and, and, you know, started by making toys and having a fashion, um, you know, business in Japan and then only kind of later has sort of crossed over into the art world, but yet still is making, um, you know, collaborating with Uniqlo and Dior and all of these other brands as well. So kind of maintaining that commercial presence at the same time and in parallel to their work, uh, in the art world. So um, you teach at FIT, that's your day job. Yep. <laughs> How many students around here are, are sort of consciously see that as their endpoint? Is that something that doesn't dawn on them? Is that something, are you seeing more students here who sort of view art and fashion as of sort of two halves of a whole rather than separate worlds? So I run a program here, it's a master's degree program in art market studies. So my students are interested in working in the art world and that's my background as well. But I think absolutely, and, and one of the kind of interesting things about working on this project 
within FIT, on one hand, it's a great place to do this project and that just through osmosis, I feel like I've become uh, so aware of, you know, some of the trends in fashion, the discourse around fashion, um, and also just very sensitive to these points of intersection between art and fashion. But, um, you know, I think so many young people that are entering, say, the fashion industry are seeing themselves really as a kind of creative, as somebody who maybe will freelance in different settings and, uh, you know, will not necessarily have that linear path uh, in the fashion industry, but maybe can deploy their talents in different ways um, in service of different kinds of brands. I think there is this, um, you know, there is a change in the way that uh, creative people, whether we're talking about artists or designers, fashion designers, are, are seeing themselves. And, and I think that was something that was interesting to think about in relationship to this book, too. I mean, at the highest level, we've seen a number of high-profile designers identify as visual artists. Um, so, you know, Tom Brown or Karl Lagerfeld, you know, had exhibitions of his photography. Uh, Eddie Salman, um, you know, Helmet the list Lang. goes on. Helmut Lang, full-time artist now who has left the fashion industry. Martin Margiela, another great example. And, you know, I think what's so interesting is now that fashion can be art, and art can be fashion, um, what distinguishes the two? And, and ultimately, I think the biggest point of differentiation between art and fashion is actually the autonomy of artistic labor. So if you're an artist, you can make art you know, as you like, and you can have a show every couple of years, but you could also have a show you know, on your own timeline. And I think part of uh, the fashion industry, what, what's kind of moving maybe even designers in this direction towards art, or, or seeing art as a kind of, uh, you know, relative oasis or, or safe haven is that the fashion industry has placed so many demands on designers and particularly the creative directors who are helming brands. They're now expected to helm these massive corporate hierarchies, uh, not just produce designs. You know, now you're talking like eight collections a year, um, but also come up with a social media campaign, oversee marketing, oversee store design. So they're, they're communicating the brand's image across every conceivable channel. They're meant to be a kind of public figure themselves that is, uh, not necessarily what they signed up for and, and not necessarily, you know, um, and they don't seem what to they last want. very long at it. Uh, I think there's either. a lot of burnout. And, and so, you know, then becoming an artist, you can, you know, indulge the same sort of creativity, the, the same uh, expressiveness, but in a different arena that feels, I think, for a lot of uh, the example, you know, a lot of these designers, it feels relatively kind of free and um, unencumbered. I get your distinction between art and fashion in the sense that, you know, the purpose of art is to exist and, and not to be instrumental. But it, it certainly seems like that also describes most fashion, uh, especially these days where we kind of have a surfeit of clothing in the world and uh, you, you, you're literally creating something that no one's seen before and its very existence is a reason to acquire it rather than you need a new dress for the new season or, you know, to go to an a, a, a event. And so it's almost like the two worlds, you know, for reasons uh, disconnected are converging on that basis uh, as well. And which would also suggest one of the reasons it's very hard for people to have these long sustained 
a Karl Lagerfeld-like uh, career just because there's so much required of, of them. And there's so much creativity that has be expressed across all these platforms. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of reasons why these fields are converging. I mean, on one hand, I agree that a lot of the fashion that we see on the runway, for instance, will never be commercially available. It's meant as marketing. So the designs that you see go out, that does not mean that all of those designs end up in a department store or end up in a luxury boutique. End up getting knocked off by fast fashion. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think like if we look back to like the 90s and certain fashion designers like Alexander McQueen or Hussein Shalayan, like it was also the runway was an, an opportunity, a kind of platform almost for like performance art spectacle where uh, designers were drawing on, on performance art and, and creating um, you know, these highly choreographed, very elaborate uh, presentations that you know, I think I would argue are the equivalent of art. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think there are different imperatives and, and fashion, especially if we're looking at luxury fashion, I mean, we're talking about a extremely profitable market. I mean, uh, LVMH last year had something like a 50% profit margin. No one in the art world could ever claim that. So, um, you know, I think that, that that also has to have an effect. And on one hand, yes, it's not like people are always buying fashion because they need a new pair of shoes or they need a dress for a particular occasion. But there, there is, a, I think, different commercial imperative. Although, you know, if, if the art world continues to be porous in the way that it has been to fashion, like, will that ultimately change? Will that commercial imperative inform what artists are creating as well? And I think that was a question I wanted to raise in the book. Do you think that there's, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who will say this is either good or bad or that one side has suffered or, or the uh, other. Do you have any sort of sense of yourself? Yeah, and, and you don't have to be independently minded. I mean, just your own personal opinion. Are they both getting what they need from each other? Is it a, is a, a sort of locking arms and, and uh, waltzing themselves down the road to perdition? You know, it's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was an interesting question to consider in writing this book, too, because I, I don't see myself, I mean, I think the book actually ended up, especially because I was writing it during the pandemic, and, um, you know, I started off thinking it was going to be a more historical book or based around interviews, and then all the libraries closed and everybody was, you know, just working from home, and so I ended up writing something that I think is more contemporary criticism and I ended up taking a more polemical stance than I think I originally had planned to. And I, I thought about this question a lot. I think, you know, if we look at the history of art and fashion, there's a very long history of designers, fashion designers, wanting to be seen as artists, wanting to draw on the creativity of artists, um, you know, enlisting artists uh, to collaborate on fashion designs or on collections. Um, and the art world, you know, there were instances of that, but on the whole, I think was more kind of resistant or skeptical about these types of collaborations. I think that's really radically changed. And in some ways you could see it as very mutually beneficial. So on the one hand, clearly fashion gets the sort of aura, lore, prestige of art. On the other hand, uh, art gets this huge audience that it would otherwise not have access to. So art, you know, if you think of the art world as this small insular her hermetic kind of world, certainly when it collaborates with fashion, I mean, look at the Kusama, um, you know, partnership. I mean, that is 
an extraordinary platform for an artist. It's undeniable. At the same time though, I would say that fashion is benefiting more than art is. And I, I do worry that, you know, how, if art continues to sort of lend its prestige and aura to fashion, how many times can you do that and still maintain the same sort of prestige and, and this sort of, you know, rarefied, exclusive aura. And um, I do think that, you know, I, I worry a little bit that the art world Thank you has for joining us at the art opened itself Podcast, up to fashion and seen Ketchin, a lot of benefits, financial and in terms of audience, without really Podcast, considering Spotify, what the SoundCloud, negative consequences you get can be as well. And, and sort of to how that may be changing, um, not just the way the art world sees itself, but Please also how art is ultimately made and how artists see themselves and what they're doing and what the objectives of making art are. That's that's a good final thought on all this. <laughs> Before we go, just a quick commercial. The title of the book is Merchants of Style. Merchants of Style, Art and Fashion After Warhol came out this month, so you can find it wherever you prefer to buy books, whether that be Amazon, through the University of Chicago Press website, um, or through any other local bookseller. Great. I hope people go out and get it. Great. Thank you so much.